Let's open in a word of prayer. Lord God, we uh, thank you for the words that we've just sung, um, that we uh, see Christ uh, on the uh, on the cross saving us, that we uh, see him uh, by faith on the throne uh, reigning over us, having risen from the dead. Uh, and Lord, we can uh, expect to see him coming once again to reign over the earth. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would keep that vision in our minds, uh, that we would uh, keep our eyes on Christ uh, as we uh, study this passage and as we uh, go as well afterwards, uh, that we would look to Christ uh, and to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, We pray these things in his name. Amen. I've uh, heard of a number of, um, I guess, pop culture sort of things, movies, games, TV shows, exploring or set in a uh, world where Germany had won World War II. There's a few things that have come out in the last few years. Um, and they sort of imagine this world where the, the West is under essentially a stable, unopposed Nazi-German rule. And they, they then explore this idea of how the world might look differently if the end of World War II had gone differently. Daily life for us would look very different. Our culture and values would be vastly different. Uh, People would think and say and and do very different things if that was the way history had gone. And it sort of illustrates the idea of there being turning points in history, things where where if if history or a decision or a, a, a conflict had gone just the other way, one of two ways, it would change the course of history as we know it. And here in our passage this morning, in Acts chapter 15, we're kind of presented with that sort of scenario. This decision, if it had have gone differently, would have entirely changed history as we know it. Uh, the, the question um, the, 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 that's up for debate, I suppose, it comes from verse 1 there, as we read. Some men came down from Judea, teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And as Steve talked about before, this is the, the question here is, do people converting to Christianity need to be Jewish? Now, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, I suppose, or if you've been following along with our series in Acts the last few weeks, you'll kind of, you might think that's a pretty silly question. Um, Of course, the answer is pretty obvious. People don't need to become uh, Christian, uh, to become Jewish, to become Christian. But in that time, it wasn't actually that obvious of a question. From the earliest uh, days of God's dealings with Israel, any outsider, any Gentile who wanted to be part of it had to become Jewish by being circumcised and submitting to the Jewish law. 
Um, Exodus 12 tells us about the Passover, one of the central feasts uh, of the the Old Testament Jewish religion. Uh, And it says there, if a stranger, if someone, a foreigner, would would like to sojourn or or live among you uh, and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come and eat it. He shall be of a native of the land. But no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. And so that's kind of where these guys are coming from. The the logic there is, shouldn't that continue, right? Why shouldn't people be made to become Jewish if, if that's how God's dealt with us in the past? Now, I'm not Jewish, and I don't think many of you probably are Jewish either, if any. So it becomes a pretty significant question in that sense. Uh, Luke, who wrote Acts as well, he probably wasn't Jewish. Uh, He was probably writing to a person who wasn't Jewish either. So this idea is is very important, this question. Uh, Imagine how things would have gone differently, I suppose, if, if if they had decided differently. Uh, Christianity would always have remained a Jewish sect. Uh, now, by this stage in Acts, the Jews were pretty much opposed to Christianity anyway, so it probably would have fizzled out if, uh, if it was just open to Jews. Um, but supposing it continued to spread, the missionary activity, the spread of the gospel, would have been quite greatly reduced. Gentile converts uh, would have been very rare, Christianity probably never would have taken over the Roman world like it did in the 4th century, so you can pretty much rule out all of European history from that point onwards. In the unlikely event that uh, non-Indigenous people came to live in Australia, the Christian communities here would probably be quite similar to what we sort of associate with Jewish communities here, very strict, insular type of communities. Uh, mainly consigned to the capital cities. Uh, And we can... It it really wouldn't be an understatement to say if the events of this chapter had played out differently, most likely none of us would ever be saved. Western society as we know it would probably not exist. And so you can see how significant this question really is. Hence verse 2, Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate. Um, And they were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders to work it out. Paul and Barnabas, two leaders uh, in the and in the church at Antioch, thought this was a big deal, so did the church there. Uh, and for Luke, who was a Gentile, uh, again, for his Gentile readership, for us today, this has huge ramifications, this question. It deals with our very salvation. It deals with how the gospel actually applies to us. Uh, and so... Luke gives a whole 
uh, 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 this massive section to the answer of this question. And there are four aspects to Luke's answer. So the first one comes from verses 6 to 12. Um, and the, uh, Paul, uh, Luke is showing us that saving grace is free for all. Saving grace is free for all. Uh, Let me pick up again from verse 5. Some believers uh, who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up at uh, at the the gathering of the believers uh, and they said it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders were gathered together to to consider this matter and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up. Now, you might notice there that Luke doesn't give much space to the actual debate. He's not really trying to give both sides a fair hearing here. Um, don't, don't come to it with that idea. He's not interested in showing us a debate. He wants us to understand the answer. Uh, and the first aspect of the answer is given to us by Peter, one of the, uh, one of the close apostles uh, and followers, uh, like the first followers of Jesus. And so often in the, in the Bible we see him as the spokesperson uh, in that setting. Uh, and Peter's answer here focuses on the historical work of God in saving Cornelius. Uh, we spoke about that a few chapters back in, uh, in Acts 10 and 11. Peter summarizes it by saying, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth... The Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. So here we see the apostles are speaking into this situation as um, the uniquely, uh, I guess, divine appointed witnesses of who Jesus, of what Jesus had done. God had saved Cornelius uh, along with his friends and family and then gave clear evidence of that by sending the Holy Spirit. Uh, and Peter had been a part of that, not by his choice really, it must be said. Uh, it was solely through divine intervention pushing him to be to do that work. He's, the significance of that, he says, is that God has worked freely to save Jews and Gentiles alike based purely on his grace. Uh, Cornelius hadn't been circumcised at the time, neither had his friends or family, but God had obviously saved them. God had sent his Holy Spirit to demonstrate that. God made no distinction between us and them, Peter says, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Uh, That's a really key phrase, uh, because as Peter recognised, and Paul, uh, if you read read further into the uh, New Testament, uh, you'll see that there's written in a number of places that we are cleansed, uh, washed, transformed, circumcised, as it were, not ultimately through an outward surgical operation performed by human hands. No, we are all uh, changed inwardly. Circumcision is about the state of our hearts, whether we are transformed from the inside out. 
The sort of transformation that we need, according to the Bible, is much bigger than a removal of a small scrap of skin. Paul says in Colossians 2 that our whole sinful self, our, our whole old lives have been cut off or circumcised. Our entire sinful lives have been cut off Uh, because we were united with Jesus, who was cut off, as it were. His life was cut off at Calvary on the cross, as we just sang. Uh, And so figuratively speaking, our our flesh has been cut off, our hearts have been replaced, uh, our minds have been transformed, and now we live new lives with Jesus through his resurrection. So Peter says in verse 11 of Acts 15, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus just as they will. Boom. This is the answer to the question that was posed in verse 1. You know, unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. No, Peter says we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. God's salvation is freely given as a gift to Jews and Gentiles alike. That's what grace means. There is no distinction, no special requirements, no impossible burden. It's always been based on grace, Peter says, both for them and us. He even sort of phrases it in this slightly cutting, brilliant way. It's not even... He doesn't say they will be saved Uh, by the grace of God, just like us. He says we will be saved by the grace of God, just like them. That's kind of a significant twist there. Paul is turning the accusation around. This party of the Pharisees said that the problem is Paul, Barnabas, and, and these Gentile Christians not understanding the requirements. But Peter says, no, the problem is that you don't understand grace. They're both saved by grace, and so are we. We're, We're all in the same boat, Peter says. We're all sinners with no hope, and we'll all be saved by this same grace. There's no two ways about it. God's saving grace is free for all. So that's the first point. Now, the second answer that Luke gives us comes through James. Uh, And we can summarise this point under the heading, uh, Jesus' kingdom is open to all. So we've had God's saving grace is free for all, and now Jesus' kingdom is open to all. Verses 13 to 21. Excuse me. Uh, After they, Paul and Barnabas, finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Uh, Now, if you read the New Testament, you'll see there's a bunch of Jameses around. This one is James, who was the biological, uh, regular biological, I suppose, sons of Mary and Joseph. Um, uh, So he's one of the brothers of Jesus, uh, and he's kind of a leader in the church, the early church in Jerusalem, one of the elders there. Uh, So he speaks as the... uh, So when... Paul and Barnabas were sent down to the elders and apostle. We've heard from the apostles through Peter, and now we're hearing from the elders through James. Uh, So let's read what he said, verses 14 to 17. 
Uh, brothers, listen to me. Simon or Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen, I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, so that the, gen- the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. Uh, He's quoting there from Amos chapter 9, written about 800 or so years before that. Um, uh, And he sort of punctuates it with a little bit of Isaiah and Jeremiah, if you're interested, um, just to give it a bit of extra oomph, I suppose. But uh, the point is that Jesus' kingship spelled salvation for both Jews and Gentiles alike. Uh, Let me walk through that quote so we get the full idea of what he's saying. Uh, He says in verse 16, After this I will return. Uh, Now, don't read that and think he's talking about end times, um, Jesus' second coming or something. It's talking about the Babylonian exile from Jeremiah. After Israel were sent into exile and and, uh, came back, uh, God would once again show favour to his people. Now, the Bible says, the Bible teaches that this returning to show favour, this uh, end of God's exile, uh, is fulfilled in God coming to his people in the person of Jesus. And that's kind of central to James's point. We're gonna, he's not talking about a future expectation. He's saying all of this has been fulfilled. Uh, so we'll see that as we read on. Now, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. Now, that's a reference to David's uh, kingly uh, uh, line. Um, his David was the first, uh, or not the first, but the prototypical king of Israel. Uh, and all of his sons, God said, or he, he would always have a, a descendant on the throne. But that had actually fallen by the time Amos uh, wrote. uh, Sorry, not by the time Amos wrote, but uh, later on they would see that God uh, would eventually run out of patience with the wickedness of those kings and there would be no more king of, uh, uh, of a descendant of David. But God assured his people, I will rebuild that tent. This... Davidic king, this coming king, uh, Messiah, they called him, will one day live in his palace once more. Uh, The house, the dynasty of David, uh, will rule once more. Uh, By extension, uh, you might say there will be a king to provide a home as well, a shelter, protection, a tent over the people of Israel. David or David's descendant will be your tent. Now, James is taking it as assumed knowledge here that this king that God has promised is Jesus. Uh, From the very start of Acts, it's precisely this belief which sets the the Christians apart from other Jews. Um, That much is assumed background. James's point then lands in verse 17. 
God raised up his king in Jesus so that the remnant or the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. The point here is that God always planned to bring Jews and Gentiles alike into his kingdom through the Davidic king, Jesus. Uh, this is really key. Uh, some people think that God's kingdom refers to something in the future, uh, that it's all about Jewish Christians living in a future physical kingdom of Israel, uh, and there is a sense in which God's kingdom will come. But the kingdom of Jesus is right here, right now. We are the kingdom. The kingdom of Jesus is open to all. We have been welcomed into that kingdom through the work of King Jesus and we are living in that kingdom right now. Now, I don't mean right here and now in these four walls in, in this church setting. As, as ordinary Christians just going about our lives, we are living as subjects of the kingdom of Jesus. The point here, as I said, is that Jesus is king now and his kingdom is open to all. Now those two points uh, that uh, saving grace is free for all and that Jesus' kingdom is open to all, that kind of forms the theological answer, the theological half of, of Luke's answer. Uh, those, the next two points um, will be a bit more practical. Um, so the third point comes in verses 22 to 29. Radical repentance is expected of all. Uh, let me read those verses. Uh, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the, uh, among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instruction, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Saul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements." that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Now, I'm going to level with you. I think this, this section of the passage is a bit puzzling. At least at, first, at, least at face value, I think it's a bit... Uh, I find it a bit puzzling. Up to this point, the whole passage has been about not overburdening Gentile converts, but now they give them requirements? What's up with that? 
Uh, even the language of it, I think, is kind of puzzling. Like, in verse 28, they use the word requirements, and then in verse 29, it sounds a bit more like they're recommendations if you want to be a top-level sort of Christian. Uh, and then, of course, there's the question of who is this actually binding on? Is it just for those Christians that it was sent to, or is it for all early Gentile believers, or is it for everyone? Uh, And then to cap it all off in verse 31, Luke has the nerve to call it encouragement. Uh, We'll come back to that in the next point. But what is actually going on here? Uh, Well, I've said, I've I've headed this section, radical repentance is expected of all. Uh, And I'll show you why I think that's a good uh, summary in a moment. Um. But let me just quickly, um, if you have studied this passage before, you might have heard the idea that uh, this passage is about helping Gentiles and Jews get along and um, it's uh, a list of things that Gentiles might get up to that Jews would find a bit offensive. Um, Now... Under that idea, this letter would be saying, you know, you Gentiles don't need to be circumcised to be saved, but given that most of your brothers and sisters are Jewish, maybe just avoid these things that might be a bit offensive. Um, Now, that kind of makes sense with what Paul says in Romans and Corinthians, but I don't actually... I'm not convinced. I think if offending Jews was all the issue was you might expect it to say, uh, abstain from what's been sacrificed to idols and and from blood and from so on. Uh, But it's okay when you're in private because then uh, your Jewish brothers and sisters won't be offended. Um, Another problem is that sexual immorality is pretty obviously an odd one out. Like, uh, the other things would all be permissible from Romans or Corinthians but just offensive, but sexual immorality is very clearly a sin. Um, Now, it's not a big deal, but I think there's a better explanation of what this passage is saying. Because if you you recognise that all these activities were really intensely associated with pagan idol worship, uh, food sacrificed to idols is obviously idol-associated, Uh, Drinking blood and strangled meat were also part of that sort of food-based idol worship. Um, And in terms of sexual immorality, a lot of the prostitution that went on in those cultures centred around pagan temples. And so each of these practices was associated with pagan idol worship. And so... The way I understand this letter is that it's saying you don't have to be circumcised and become Jewish in that sense, but all that pagan worship that you used to be involved with is not compatible at all in any way with the worship of the true God. If you want to be a convert to Christianity, if you want to come and worship the true God, the God of Israel, sure you don't have to be an Israelite, but you do have to wholeheartedly worship the God of Israel. You have to worship him rightly. Um, To think of a a modern parallel, I suppose, I I, um, had a friend uh, who shared the gospel um, with a a Hindu 
uh, one of his Hindu uh, relatives, I think he was um, uh, an Indian. Um, and when he explained to this Hindu man that uh, Jesus is God and you have to worship Jesus, uh, eventually he worked out that what, he, that what the man interpreted was, you know, I've got to make a little space on my, on my uh, uh, mantelpiece, as it were, and uh, put up my little Jesus shrine and offer incense to him and, and that sort of thing alongside all my other gods, uh, and there I'm worshipping Jesus. And he had to explain, no, you worship God and him alone in the way that he calls you to worship him or you aren't worshipping him at all. This is a call to to radically shift, to repent, to change the way that you relate to God. To leave that old way of life behind. Leave that, turn away from it, reject it. Now, I don't know what you've uh, done in your past life, what habits you formed, what patterns uh, and, and pursuits ruled your life in the past, but the gospel calls you to radically abandon that way of life, to follow and worship Jesus. That's what repentance means. That's what it means to convert. That's what believing in Jesus means. All of us uh, need to do this. Uh, we've all uh, worshipped idols, not, not little uh, objects, but, uh, but things that we look to uh, to give us meaning and life and to find joy and happiness in life. Whether it be work or, or wealth, sex, power, sport, standing before others, each and every one of us has spent our lives pursuing, looking for things that would make us happy, make us feel like we mean something, uh, that, that we have worth as people. Even if you're a Christian, uh, we still default to that. It's what we naturally do. We naturally crave things like that. We... Well, we naturally we have a natural craving for God, except that we don't want God, because that's what uh, sin means. Uh, we we look then to make a God out of things that we can that we think might give us a tiny fraction of of worth and meaning uh, that properly come from glorifying God. Uh, Christians of old spoke of our hearts being like a factory, churning out idols, 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 bang, 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 constantly giving us things that we might love more than God. And, and even if we, uh, even if that wasn't bad enough, we do it as a culture as well. We, uh, as I said, we don't have. Most of us uh, in our Western culture don't have. Uh, little objects that we worship, but our culture idolises the self. What I want, what I want to become, what I deserve, what I think of as right, what I grew up expecting from life, what I think everyone else around me is getting wrong and how I think life should be better. That's what we want and what we're told to want from life. 
But the Bible calls us to repent, to turn away, reject that idolatry, reject the practices that feed into that idolatry, uh, and do that because we are called to worship and enjoy God. He calls us to deny ourselves and find eternal salvation and joy in Him. He calls us to stop striving uh, to make our own happiness, to realize that his grace is all that we need to know true and pure joy. He calls us to give up on trying to control our lives and destinies and to find that we are safe and secure in his eternal kingdom. Uh, and And he calls us to do that because of our fourth point, Gospel encouragement brings joy to all. Gospel encouragement brings joy to all. Uh, Verses 30 to 35. uh, Here Luke shows us the outcome uh, of all that's come so far. Uh, And we read in verse 31. When they had read this letter, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Uh, The word encouragement there isn't just about giving you nice feelings. Uh, The word refers to all the emotional, uh, I guess, support and and guidance in life um, that the gospel brings us. Uh, The gospel, the good news that Jesus died for our sins and he rose so that we would rise and live forever with him too, that gospel encourages us uh, in the sense of giving us hope. Uh, It encourages us by showing us what it means to follow Jesus. Uh, The Antioch believers were encouraged that they had been saved uh, just as they were. They were encouraged to worship Jesus uh, in a way that was radically different to what they had known worship to be. Uh, And that encouragement, Luke says, brought them joy. They rejoiced because of its encouragement. The requirements of those Pharisees, uh, the burdens brought them troubled minds, as James says. But the gospel brought them joy. And this is so key to the Christian life. We have a a tendency to look for and focus on requirements. Uh, Don't do this, do that, pray more, read the Bible more, uh, maybe don't be angry, don't be lazy, all these sorts of things that we need to do to be a good Christian. Uh, And indeed, it is good to obey God. Uh, Obedience does bring joy, but joy is found first and foremost in what Christ has done for us. What we do for him flows out of that. The gospel encouragement brought them joy. uh, And verse 32, the brothers encouraged and strengthened them with many words. So the encouragement of the gospel brings joy and it brings strength. Do you want to be strong as a Christian? Do you want to stand strong in this world? Do you want strength and stamina as you, as you share the gospel? Well, your strength as a Christian comes not from yourself, but by resting in, remembering, hoping in who Jesus is. What he's done, uh, what he is doing, what he will do, that is the strength that we need. Uh, 
thirdly, verse 33, after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace. The encouragement of the gospel brings joy, it brings strength, and it brings peace. Our unity and peace as a church is found in remembering that we all share in that same grace of Jesus. Uh, And finally, verse 35, uh, Paul and Barnabas were teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others. Uh, This speaks of the instruction uh, leading in life. Uh, Some people say that the gospel, or think that the gospel saves us and then we move on to other things, but that's not what the Bible teaches. We grow as Christians by the gospel. We live uh, self-controlled, upright and godly lives, Paul says in Titus, by the grace of God. We are taught by the grace of God. We grow by learning more about Jesus. We meditate on him, Uh, our our lives are transformed into his likeness by his spirit as we look to him. The encouragement of the gospel brings us joy, strength, peace and instruction in our Christian lives. Uh, I started out this morning by saying how differently Christianity uh, or or history would be if the the events of this chapter had gone differently. And I think... uh, It's as we recognise that that we see why the gospel brought so much joy to these Christians. Why the the encouragement of the gospel brought such joy to them and why it brings such joy to us too. God has made his free gift of salvation freely available to all. Uh, If you never heard that or believed that before, or if you've heard this message countless times... Whether Christianity is foreign or familiar to you, this message is for you. God calls you to repent, to reject your selfish idolatry and submit yourself heartily to the kingdom of Jesus and then rest and rejoice. Enjoy his grace and his love forever. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the gospel, uh, for the grace that you have offered us. Uh, for the free gift of salvation uh, that we find in Jesus. Uh, I pray that uh, we would not uh, lose sight of this, that we would not forget it, uh, but that we would uh, continually remember and rejoice. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.